Morning. I'm going to try really hard to make eye contact, not read a book report. But I have a book report. Um, I actually prepare these things well in advance. That's one of my things, is I get these things well in advance. And so this was prepared in May. And then I just basically read through it many, many times. And I um, read new stuff, and I add new stuff, talk to people, change it. So it's all here. But then when I stare at you people, you freak me out. And then it turns into a book report. So I'm going to try really, really hard um, to not do that. So. I always carried that picture in my wallet when I was in high school, and I told people that was Jesus' senior picture. And his mother told him, you know, that long hair is going to be with you forever. And, you know, you don't want that there. So, anyway. so in our world today, Jesus is referred to in a lot of ways um, by the world. A good moral teacher, an example to follow, a great prophet of God, amongst others. However, my task today is to review simply who Jesus thought he was. Um, if he, in fact, was just a good and moral guy, as many in the world might claim, then maybe there's a better guy out there for us to worship and adore. But if he is truly God, as I'll argue today, then there's a, a lot more writing on it than, um, and, and how we respond to him will obviously take a whole lot different approach. This is a question that I sought out for my pastors, parents, mentors, um, early in life because I didn't want to be duped into believing something just to satiate me before I die. Um, all that to say, I think this is an important query for believers to ask, who did Jesus claim to be? Now, later in the series, we'll have sermons on the integrity of the New Testament from Wendell, um, sermons on the exclusive way to the Father from Nate Hubbard. Um, but today, my simple task is just to go over who Jesus thought he was, who he claimed to be, essentially what was his self-concept. Um, now, last week, um, we heard from Carrie. She argued that the Gospels do describe an accurate history, and in my utilization of the New Testament this morning, I'm going to assume that um, using the Gospels in particular as a reliable primary source to Christ's claims is a noble endeavor. Many liberal the theologians would argue that utilizing the Bible to forward the claims regarding Christ's self-identity be circular and maybe not academically or historically valid. Um, but William Lane Craig and others would argue that the early church chose only the earliest sources, which were closest to Jesus and the original disciples, to include in the New Testament, and left out the later secondary accounts, which were oftentimes fake. So from the very nature of the case, the best historical sources were included in the New Testament. So people who insist on evidence taken only from writings outside the New Testament they really don't understand what they're asking. They're demanding that you ignore early, earlier primary sources about Jesus in favor of sources that are later secondary and less reliable. Now, I will reference a couple secondary sources this morning, but I want to encourage you not to see utilizing the Bible as a primary source evidence in this endeavor as circular or less than. Now, in the Bible, it would appear that Jesus is seen as God, as we read in John, for instance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And consider the shared titles of God, um, um, the Father and Christ the Son that we see in the Bible, like Mighty God, Creator, Alpha and Omega, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, just to name a few. Or consider some of the functions that the biblical writers attribute to Jesus that would imply deity, like Creator, Sustainer, and Ruler. Um, 
Now, those are things that were claimed of Jesus within the scriptures, but what did he claim? Um, three explicit claims that we'll go over here for a bulk of today is that, that Jesus makes about himself in the New Testament are his claims to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, his claim to be the unique Son of God, and his claim to be the Son of Man, all claims to deity. So let's first look at those three claims one at a time. First, Christ claimed to be the Messiah. The actual title of Messiah is given in Peter's confession regarding Christ in Mark 8. It reads, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. This is confirmed as well in John 6, when Peter says, We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And understand that Jesus did not correct them, or consider Christ's response to Thomas in John 20. After Thomas says, My Lord and my God, Christ says, You believe because you have not seen me, because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me, obviously agreeing with Thomas's assessment. Another story illustrating Jesus' messianic self-consciousness is the story of Jesus' answer to the disciples of John the Baptist when John was in prison, found in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. Many scholars think this comes from a old, very old source that, that Matthew and Luke shared called Q, according to Craig. In these verses, John the Baptist's disciples asked Jesus directly, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When they refer to the one who is to come, we're reminded of previous statements by John the Baptist made in Mark 1 and John 1 when he refers to the one who is coming after me. Now, Jesus' answer seems to blend prophecies about the Messiah found in Isaiah when he says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Even Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey that we read about in Mark 11 and John 12, was a dramatic, provocative assertion of his messianic status. In mounting a colt and riding into Jerusalem, Jesus is deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And why was Christ crucified? Simply stated, because of his messianic claims. The high priest in Mark 14 asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Christ's answer, I am. So with the overlapping of so many factors, each ratified with independent sources, historical fit, dissimilarity, and so on, there seems to be a powerful cumulative case that Jesus did indeed see himself as the Jewish Messiah. Now moving on to Christ's second claim, that he is the Son of God. Understand first that Jesus is not God's son in the sense of a human father and a son. God did not get married and have a son, he didn't mate with Mary and together produce a son. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God, the second person of the Trinity, made manifest in human form. Now Christ makes this claim to be the son of God often in the Gospels, and we'll look at three of those examples here. Um, first, consider the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark 12. It reads, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. 
then sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one, one, he had, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyards do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read, where the others? Um, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it, it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So in the parable, it seems clear that the vineyard is Israel, the owner is God, the tenants are the Jewish religious leaders, the servants are the prophets sent by God, and the owner's son is Christ. So as you remember, the tenants, the Jewish religious leaders, beat and reject the owner's servants, the prophets, until finally the owner, God, decides to send his son, Christ, who they also kill. Now, skeptics can also get on board with this, since this is a parable that shows up in independent sources that the liberal theologians love, the Gospel of Thomas. In this parable, Jesus sees himself as the owner's only son, a.k.a. the only son of God. In Matthew 11, Jesus states plainly that he is the son of God. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal this is reiterated in Luke 10. Now lastly, let's look at Mark 13. When asked about future events in the Lord's return by his disciples, Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It seems highly unlikely that this saying could be a later fraudulent product of Christian theology because it ascribes ignorance to the Son, which would be an embarrassing thing to report, as Carrie pointed out last week. So reporting a quote of Jesus where he makes it clear that he sees himself as the Son of God, but also reports on being ignorant of his return kind of adds credence to the quote. Um, based on these three passages, there's good evidence that Jesus thought of himself as the unique Son of God. Now when Jesus made claims about himself, he made the claim to being the Son of God in a singular sense as God's Messiah. And that set him apart from the prophets and all others before him. So different in how we might say that we're children of God or God is our father, Jesus' singular sense reads more like God's only son. Now Craig puts it like this, Jesus' sense of being God's son involved a sense of proximity to the father that transcended that of, all, of any other human, even a king or a prophet or even like an angelic being. And remember, during his trial, before the Jewish religious leaders, the high priest demanded of Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The Jewish leaders responded by accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Later, before Pontius Pilate, the Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. So now why would, be, why would his claiming to be the Son of God be considered blasphemy and be worthy of death? The Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant by the phrase Son of God. To be the Son of God is to be the same nature as God. The Son of God is of God. 
the claim to be the same nature as God to be in fact is, is to be in fact God was blasphemy to the Jewish relig- religious leaders. Therefore, they demanded Jesus' death. And Hebrew 1.3 kind of expresses this concept clearly when it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, the third title Christ used to describe himself is that of Son of Man. Now, this title is Jesus was a common self-description. It's found like over 80 times in the Gospels alone. And interestingly, it's only used one other time in the rest of the New Testament in Acts 7, when Stephen, right before he's martyred, states, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. So, what does this phrase, Son of Man, mean? Now, John Piper states that the Son of Man has kind of a double meaning of human being and exalted heavenly one. When Jesus does refer to himself as the Son of Man, it obviously alludes to Christ's humanity, born of a virgin, um, fully human. But also, we see the definite article, the, unlike the definite article, a, that we see Ezekiel use when he refers to himself as a Son of Man in the Old Testament. By using the definite article, the, Jesus seems to be directing attention to the divine human figure prophesied in Daniel 7, which reads, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here in Daniel we see that the Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. It says that all people from every nation and language worship him. And in Luke 22, when Jesus testifies that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of of the mighty God, Jesus' opponents clearly understood this to be a claim to deity, and they condemned him to die on the basis of this perceived blasphemy, according to theologian Timothy Tennant. And we see all three of these titles come together in Mark 14 at Jesus' trial, where all three claims are agreed on or uttered by Christ, and there's an extra claim thrown in that he'll be seated at the right hand of God. From Matthew 14, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. So Jesus sees himself clearly here as the one and only unique Son of God, the Son of Man, not a Son not a son of man, and Israel's royal Messiah. And he acts and speaks with divine authority throughout the Gospels. Now, there's also a number of things that Jesus did that would also give the impression that he saw himself as deity besides his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. First, his teachings. Um, Jesus diverted from the traditional teaching style of the rabbis at the time when he taught. Traditionally, the rabbis would quote from the Law of Moses or from other learned um, teachers other than themselves. But Jesus kind of did the opposite or something a little different. He would begin oftentimes by saying, and you've heard this, you've heard that it was said of men of old, and he would follow that with a quote from the Law. Then he would say something like, but I say unto you, and he would give his own teaching. Jesus would then equate his own authority with that of the divinely given law. And the listeners saw the difference. Um, 
For Matthew 7, we read, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, according to Craig, it's not just that Jesus placed his personal authority on par with that of the divine law, but he was comfortable kind of modifying the traditional understanding of it um, based on his own authority. So look at Matthew 5, where Jesus explicitly quotes the teaching of the law in Deuteronomy regarding divorce. And he kind of he clarifies the traditional interpretation of, of it, stating that Moses doesn't represent the perfect will of God on the matter and presumes to elucidate the law on his own authority as to what it means, I mean, what it really means. Jesus clearly sees himself as a divine authority here. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the phrase, truly I say unto you, this expression expresses clearly Christ's authority when he says it. This expression is historically unique, and it recognized, is recognized to have been the way Jesus marked off his authoritative word. Also, Christ was in the habit of doing other things that were normally attributed only to God, like casting out demons and forgiving sins, performing miracles, raising the dead, accepting worship, judging, and suggesting that people's eternal destiny hinged on whether or not they believed in him, which it does. Um, now, it is true that the apostles also did some of these things, like casting out demons, um, performing miracles, raising the dead, but Christ took a different approach, as we'll see moving forward. Um, let's look at how Jesus' authority is evident in his role as an exorcist. It's historically certain that Jesus believed he had the power to cast out demons. This was a sign to the people of his divine authority. As Jesus stated in Luke 11, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. This shows that Jesus claimed divine authority over the spiritual forces of evil and that he believed that in himself the, very, the, the kingdom of God had come, putting himself in God's place. Very different in how the apostles cast out demons. In the book of Acts, when Paul casts the demon out of the servant girl, he states, I command you in the name of Jesus to depart from her. When Jesus casts out demons in the Gospels, he simply tells them to come out and does it in his own name. And Christ's sense of divine authority is seen clearly in his claim to forgive sins. He assumes the prerogative to forgive sins throughout the Gospels, but expressly extends forgiveness, for, for example, in Matthew 9, when some men brought Jesus a paralyzed man on a stretcher. Jesus says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law called this blasphemous. Or consider the sinful woman in Luke 7 when Jesus says to her, Your sins are forgiven. And some of the other guests were perplexed and said, Who is this who even forgives sins? And we're all familiar with the story in Luke 5 when a paralyzed man's friends lower him into a house for Jesus to heal him. Jesus controversially says to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees balked and called this blasphemy. So clearly Jesus acted and spoke with a self-consciousness of divine authority and saw himself as God by forgiving sins as only God can do. Besides the things just reviewed, Christ also saw himself as a miracle worker. Remember, Christ's reply to the disciples of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus clearly believed that he had the power to heal people and even raise the dead. And these stories of Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead are found and corroborated throughout the Gospels. John Meyer, a historical Jesus scholar, states, Jesus' role as a miracle healer has as much historical corroboration as almost any other statement we can make about Jesus in history. 
Craig states that Jesus' miracles were fundamentally different from the wonders performed by pagan magicians, Jewish holy men, and the apostles, for that matter. For Jesus never prays for a miracle to be done. He may first express thanks to God the Father, but then he just does the miracle by himself, and he does it in his own name. Specifically related to raising the dead, we see this numerous times in the Bible. For example, when Jesus raises the widow's son in Luke 7, or Jer- Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, or Lazarus, as we read in the book of John. Different here is how, how, is how Jesus did it. With Lazarus, Jesus set, thanks the Father and calls on Lazarus to come out. With the widow's son, Jesus merely says, Young man, I say to you, get up. And with Jairus' daughter, Jesus says, My child, get up. Jesus is the one doing the raising. When we see other cases of raising the dead in the Bible, for instance, with Elijah um, raising a widow's son in 1 Kings, we read that Elijah cried out to God for the boy's life to return. And similarly with Elisha in 2 Kings, when, the boy ra- when he raises a boy, we read that Elisha cried out to the Lord. Or in the book of Acts, when Peter raises Tabitha, we read that Peter fell to his knees and prayed. In the last three instances, it is clear that Elijah, Elisha, and Peter were all calling on God to do the miraculous act, unlike Jesus, who just did it. Another thing that Christ did that shows that he saw himself as God is the fact that he accepts worship and doesn't correct folks when they do worship him. A couple of examples, Matthew 14, 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Or Matthew 28, 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Lastly, let's look at Christ's role as judge. Jesus held that people's attitudes towards him would be the determining factor in how God will judge them on Judgment Day. He states in Luke 12, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Here, Jesus is clearly claiming that people will be judged before him on the basis of their response to him. Jesus here seems to be claiming that people's eternal destiny is dependent on how they respond to him, essentially that everyone's salvation depends on their confession of Jesus himself, quite a claim to divinity. In conclusion, what do we see in the scriptures as it relates to Jesus' self-concept or identity? He clearly saw himself as deity, the promised Messiah, God's only Son, and the Son of Man found in Daniel, to whom all dominion and authority to whom all dominion and authority would be given, and also claimed to act and speak with divine authority, performed exorcism and exorcisms in his own name, forgave sins, saw himself as a miracle worker, um, even raising the dead in his own name, accepted worship, and saw himself as a judge, and believed that people's eternal destiny hinged on whether or not they believed in him. This is what Christ believed about himself and what the apostles held, held to and taught and recorded in Scripture. And as Carrie mentioned last week, if Christ wasn't who he claimed to be, then maybe we should find something more productive to do on Sunday mornings. Now, C.S. Lewis's famous liar, lunatic, or Lord analogy seems like a fitting way to end this morning. So, quoting from Lewis, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. Thanks, Tim. I think um, as Tim was going through all of the different reasons we have to give credibility to um, Christ's divinity throughout the scriptures or throughout the New Testament and Gospels particularly, it's important not merely to take his word for it, um, Christ's word that is, it's not merely um, enough to say that the way that people responded to him, although those two things are important, um, but to notice all of the different ways in which uh, Christ fulfilled roles um, that are expressly set aside for, for deity um, and functions of deity um, that he kind of encapsulates when he responds to uh, John the Baptist's disciples to come ask if, when they come and ask if he's the one uh, who is promised. And so not only Jesus' self-identification, not only the way people responded to him throughout the Gospels, but also um, all of the roles and functions that he uh, performed uh, that fit in line with the Jewish conception of deity. Um, and you kind of see, it's a, it seems to be a particularly, uh, I wouldn't say modern uh, idea or confusion, rather, about who Jesus is and was, um, but if you take the Gospels on their own terms and you just read this passionately through them, it's pretty clear, uh, if it's not cl abundantly clear at the beginning of each of the Gospels, by the end it kind of builds like a crescendo the clarity that everyone has around the issue of who is Jesus. Um, perhaps uh, at the beginning of his public ministry, we see him doing his first miracles and showing up um, in all these public places at first, um, perhaps then there's confusion, but you notice throughout the, the Gospels, as people interact with him more, as they ask him questions, as they try to worship him and he accepts it, as, he, as people try to worship others like angels and like the disciples, for instance, who refuse the worship, um, all of those things build and build and build and build to the point where He's executed because of those claims, as as Lewis and others have pointed out. You don't you don't execute um, somebody who's making mere modest claims about being a you know dirty hippie teacher wandering around Palestine. You you execute somebody who's putting himself on par with God, and we just see it over and over and over again in the religious leaders' responses to his words. And so there's no ambiguity. Uh, there's there's only ambiguity if you're looking. Uh, to to Jesus for something other than what he actually is, right? Um, if you're looking to him to to be um, something other than God, and you want to just pluck out moral teachings that he has, or um, you know whatever your pet project is, then then it's then it's like, well, I don't, you know, he, you can choose to ignore certain things, um, but uh, 
And and I think the the last point that I would say that Tim reminded me of as he was talking was, um, is it not one of the most infuriating things in the world to not be able to convince somebody of who you know that you are or or um, someone you love or are close to who they are? If you're trying to talk to somebody who maybe doesn't know your brother, your sister, your wife, or your husband, or your child, and you're trying to convince them of, of who that person is, and the other person is just not buying it, they're, not, they're, they're doubting it for some reason, it's very, very difficult because to you it's abundantly clear who that person is, and you're just not able to convey it and convince the other person of, of who you are, who that loved one is. And I think, um, I, you know, you can, if, if we're that frustrated about something like that, um, I think uh, the Lord's fr <laughs> frustration about um, being misrepresented when he's clearly told us in the Gospels about who he is and, um, and how we are to, to call him and identify him. Um, that must be very saddening for him. So uh, let, us, let us take him on his own terms. Um, and as Tim pointed out over and over again, uh, the plain reading of the Gospels is that he, he is the Lord, he, he um, is God, and um, all we need to do is, is go peruse the Gospels in order to see that. So let's stand together and we'll close. From Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.